Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in May of 2018. Our talk is hosted by Alan Tonelson and Dr. Robin Gaster. Dr. Gaster received multiple bachelor's degrees from the University of Oxford in politics, economics, and philosophy. He later went on to earn his master's in philosophy from the University of Kent and his PhD from UC Berkeley. After two years of teaching at the University of Virginia, he would eventually become a research fellow at the Office of Technology Assessment, an arm of the U.S. Congress. Since then, Dr. Gaster founded Incumetrics, a consulting company that focuses on politics, economics, and technology. He is currently a visiting scholar at the George Washington University Institute for Public Policy and is the author of Behemoth, Amazon Rising. Together, the Henry George School and Dr. Gaster discussed how small firms can be successful, the rise of the gig economy, and why productivity has stagnated across developed nations. Happy New Year's to all of our listeners across the globe, and we hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Smart Talk, the Henry George School of Social Sciences video interview series with leading economic thinkers. My name is Alan Tonelson. I'm a trustee of the Henry George School, and I'm the founder of the Reality Check blog, which covers economic and national security issues. And this month, we're especially pleased to welcome as our guest, Dr. Robin Gaster, who is going to be speaking about a subject that's uh, very dear to the heart of probably everybody who's got to work for a living, and that is, will the robots and the new technologies be taking all of our jobs? And Robin is going to explain in today's Smart Talk, why this time, even though perhaps in previous eras of technological change we've seen net job gains, this time it's different, Robin says. And he's uniquely qualified to comment on these questions. He is currently the founder of a very successful and well-known economic consulting firm, I should say economic and technology consulting firm, Incumetrics. And his clients include many government agencies, both in the United States and also Europe. Robin holds a PhD in political science from the University of California, Berkeley. His uh, previous uh, positions have included technology analyst at Congress's former Office of Technology Assessment. He is, again, uniquely qualified to talk about this mega issue of the impact of new technologies on the American labor market, on the global labor market, and we're very pleased to have him as our guest on this month's edition of Smart Talk. Robin, welcome to the Henry George School and welcome to Smart Talk. And I'm so glad that we were able uh, to schedule this interview because the question of the impact of new technologies, automation, broadly speaking, on the American jobs market and on the world jobs market is really just about on everybody's lips. And um, I know that you're going to be able to offer some especially valuable insights here. And in fact, even groundbreaking insights. But let's start off with a question that's been bugging me for many, many months now, and that is, where did you get the name for your company, Incumetrics? So, uh, I've been working on innovation and innovation policy for a very long time. And really, 
from a policy perspective, this is sort of about incubating innovation. How, how do you get small companies to be more successful? How do you grow more Googles? How do you, well, you may not want to grow more Googles now, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, do, uh, how do you move from the lab all the way to the market and then on into rapid growth? And so that's really, I see that as the, the, the government's job is to foster the conditions that make that easier. So that's the in incubation part. And uh, I'm kind of a data-driven guy. I, I like data, and I think data helps us to make smart choices. Uh, so metrics. So um, you know, a current project is to try and use census data to try and measure outcomes for certain programs. That's the kind of thing that I'm thinking will be important as we go forward. And I know that, that you've managed to obtain access to a lot of very detailed census data that's normally not available to the general public. And I also know that a lot of this highly specialized data has been central to your research into this mega issue of the effect of new technologies on the employment market. So I'm really looking forward to uh, finding out about some of your, uh, your major findings. But let's sort of start from, from 30,000 feet mm -hmm. and note that, that the question is being asked everywhere and the, the convention and at least one part of the conventional wisdom is that um, the advent of what is called advanced robotics, the advent of what is called artificial intelligence, probably a uh, misnomer used by us laymen, but <laughs> that's how that that's how the public debate has been conducted so far. Those two technologies in particular are so revolutionary that uh, we are going to see the kind of job destruction due to them uh, that we've never seen in previous waves of technology and automation. Mm -hmm. And before getting into the question of whether the effects will be negative or positive, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what precisely those terms mean and even mm -hmm. if they're what we should be talking about. Yeah. So. Um, you know, the rise of the robots and the challenge of artificial intelligence are, are, are pretty current in the, in, in the policy debate and even beyond. People are concerned about uh, what jobs their kids are going to have. Um, but I think they're, they're, they're too narrow for our purposes, partly because they haven't happened yet. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen some automation in... Um, uh, in manufacturing. We've seen quite a lot of manu manufacturing automation and we've seen quite a lot of jobs moving away from manufacturing as a result. So, so that's a clue. Um, but we, you know, when I talk to people about it, they ask when the robot is going to take my job. And it's not quite as simple as that. If you think about your job, your job is a bundle of tasks. And what will happen is not that there will be Mr. Robot sitting at your desk one day instead of you. Uh, what will happen is that some of those tasks will be done by machines. And they probably will not be physical machines either. They will be software. Um, Mark Andreessen said many years ago, software is eating the world. And just let's, let's, let's make sure to identify him. 
he was the founder of the of the Netscape, browser yes. Netscape that was and a major step forward. And a pretty well-known right? venture capitalist. And, and he, the technology guru. Yes. Right. Okay. He's not always right, but that was a deep insight okay. that, right. that um, the uh, changes in information technology have allowed us to do things that we simply couldn't imagine 10 years ago. Uh, you know, 10 years mm. ago, the driverless car was a mm. case study in, mm. in, in people's work mm. uh, on what mm. could not be automated. Right. Driving mm. was impossible. You right. couldn't get to a driverless right. car. Right. Well, 10 years on, we, we got driverless Seems cars. Seems to be a lot closer. Yes, sir. right. Yes. So, um, so, so my, my point is general, that you have to think not about robots replacing people, right. but tasks and jobs getting unbundled. So mm. let, me, let me give you an example which people don't usually think about. Mm. Doctors. What do doctors do? Right? Doctors diagnose, right. they treat, mm. they say nice things to their patient. If they have a good bedside map. If man. they have a good bedside right. map. I think in 10 years it's extremely unlikely that doctors mm. are going to be doing diagnosis. Mm. Uh, doc doctors cannot possibly keep up with the literature. They are heavily influenced by the, the marketing of, the fi uh, of Big Pharma. Right. And they make mistakes. Sure. And if you have, I don't say that machines will never make mistakes, yeah. but they'll mm. make fewer. Mm. Yeah. So 10 years from now, the job of a doctor is going to look really, really different. Mm. If they're not the primary diagnostician, sure. what does that say? It's not right. that they will all go away. Mm. It's just that they will either do something else, and possibly that a number of them will go away. Right. So, so my, I guess my, my sort of general point is, we have to think of these technologies for, first, mm -hmm. that these technologies are much broader than just AI and robotics. Those mm -hmm. are kind of the spearhead mm -hmm. points in manufacturing and elsewhere. They will make a difference over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. But Amazon is already eating jobs. Right. It's not mm -hmm. that we have to wait for AI Amazon will take an enormous number of retail jobs right. if there is no AI. If they, mm -hmm. don't, they don't need it. It's a different set of things. Right. So, so we have the, the advent of, of digital platforms, mm -hmm. which uh, are an entirely new beast. We have a global economy. We have companies that operate in a different kind of way mm -hmm. now. And, and those are all things that contribute to this. So it's not right. just about the technology, it's right. about the whole package. Right. It seems though that, that, that it's been a relatively recent phenomenon <clears throat> that, that a main focus of, uh, of politicians and the chattering classes, the pundits, the talk show people, et cetera, it seems only fairly recently that they have been concentrating on this, uh, this alleged jobs-eating yeah. uh, likelihood of, right. of these new technologies, even though a lot of them have been around for quite a while. We had robots being introduced into General Motors factories and actually yes. into Japanese automobile factories decades 30, ago. 30 years ago. We've had, right. uh, 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 <laughs> software is not new, obviously. It's, mm -hmm. it's become much more sophisticated. But why do you suppose that that there's been this new outburst or this recent new outburst well, it seems of concern. Yeah, so it seems to me that there's a confluence of factors. Um, first off, the speed
speed of technology, technological change is accelerating. You know, people who are not worried about the, about the disruption that I see ahead, people who aren't worried basically point to the past. And they say, well, we managed to move from agriculture to manufacturing, right. manufacturing to services. Right. It was a bit disruptive. Sure. But in the end, everyone did better. Mm -hmm. But those took decades and decades. Right. And it was harsh anyway. Mm. And we know from the Rust Belt that you know, adjustment right. can be really, really painful. Right. But this is much faster. Mm. You know, it took about 75 years for cars to reach 50% of the population. Mm. And it took seven years for smartphones to reach 50% of the population. Mm. It's just much faster. So that's point one. Point two is that we are now in, it, the US used to be a continental economy which it could control. Mm. You know, we could have labor laws, we could have intellectual property laws, mm. um, and while there would be arguments and complaints, we controlled that. Right. We're now, we've gone from, 10% of our economy being imports and exports mm -hmm. only 30 years ago, mm -hmm. less than 30 right. years ago. Now it's 30%. Mm -hmm. So we are embedded in a global economy, like it or not. We have to worry about labor markets in China mm -hmm. and intellectual property in China in ways that we simply didn't. So we have less control. The third is what I call scope. Mm -hmm. So. If you think about it, the, the transition from agriculture to manufacturing affected basically one industry, agriculture. Right. There are different components. Mm -hmm. The shift from manufacturing to services, yes, there are different manufacturing industries, right. obviously, but it, you know, it's like 15% of the economy, 18%, 20% mm -hmm. of the economy. It's not big, important, right. but what I'm saying is that the transformation we're seeing affects everybody. It affects government services, mm. it affects healthcare, it affects manufacturing, it affects right. financial services, it affects teaching, and it affects mm. retail. All of the services. So in a certain sense, everybody feels uneasy sure. because everybody knows mm. that they right. could be next. Right. Sure. Sure. So those three things, I think, come together uh, to make people very concerned, uneasy. It's right. too fast. We don't know how to handle it. There are some other things which we can talk about later if you want about how we're poorly positioned to handle sure. it. Oh, yeah. um, and we may be worse off than we used to be. Mm -hmm. But I think that's why people are worried. They see something happening very quickly, very deeply, right. very widely, right. and they don't really know right. what to do about it. I would imagine also, and please correct me if I'm wrong, no. that the advent of the global financial crisis, this painful recession <laughs> that followed, this weak recovery, that's followed it, which has been characterized to a remarkable extent by very feeble wages growth. Yes, must have had something to do with this, with a feeding into a, a growing sense of insecurity about one's financial future. Yes, I, I think you put your finger on something important. I think this notion of insecurity is or <laughs> is um, is an important one. The the Brits have a term for this. They mm. call it the precariat. Mm -hmm. The people mm -hmm. who are precariously connected to the labor market. Right. Right. And, you know, there, there are 60 million Americans out mm -hmm. of 180 in the workforce, more or less, who are in some kind of contingent relationship. Right. They're not in right. a full-time mm -hmm. job. And so, and people can see right. that those full-time jobs are gradually being replaced by mm -hmm. contracting and gig right. economy and, you know, and they look and they see 
that their hold on their, on their own job is just not secure. It used to be that you would go into government, for example, right. and you know, it's a job for life. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you could screw up, but, right. but mm -hmm. it was very difficult. Sure. It was a job for life. Well, I don't think people think like that anymore. No. And so there is this tension underneath. And I would say it's also a tension with the American dream. Mm -hmm. You know, the social contract after World War II right. was, a, was a contract that said, you work hard, you pay your taxes, you pay right. your dues, and you'll be taken care of, and your kids will do better than right. you. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think, basically, in the last 20 years, we've broken that contract. It certainly frayed very badly at the very yes. least. So. Yeah, so, so, so people are upset, and they're upset partly because they can't really tell what's going on. They can't right. see the future because mm -hmm. the future is so, so cloudy and difficult to see. And the sort of underlying terms of the deal seem to have well, been renegotiated <coughs> without anybody telling them. Right. Let's, let's, let's get back to this subject of the so-called gig economy mm. just for a moment because it, uh, we, we admittedly don't have wonderful ways of measuring it. It's, it, it, it's hard to quantify precisely, right. but I think everybody w would agree it's, it's, been, it's, been growing, it's been growing rapidly and certainly more rapidly than most other kinds, yeah. in fact, than the more desirable forms of, right. of full-time employment. But how, is there a close connection, as you see it, between the spread of this gig economy and these new technology trends that are sweeping yeah, through the, the workplace? Because I can see arguments both for and against that proposition. Well, um, I would one, one of the things I'd say first is that mm. the Uber is not the gig economy. Okay, U Uber, That's Uber is a small part. I, I mentioned 60 million people who have some kind of contingent uh, relationship to the workforce. They might be contractors, they might be part-time workers. You know, there, there are a lot of different kinds of arrangements. Sure. Uber only has 150,000 people. Oh. It, it, it's a barely a pinprick on sure. the boil of the inf right. in, 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 okay. of the contingent well economy. Put. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, but it's facilitated by the technology. Right. You couldn't have Uber without the technology. Right. Yeah. And and similarly, I think contracting and outsourcing has become much more feasible. It mm. used to be that you had to work on site. Well, really to get right. anything done. I mean, right. teleworking was rare right. and outsourcing was rare. And now it's not. It's just right. one more option in front of the manager, one more right. menu item, yeah. if you like. You might hire somebody in. Well, hiring somebody in is expensive. Yeah. It's difficult to find the right people. We can talk about that later. Um, uh, and you have all these benefits and other costs. And yeah. then you might have to fire them. And so in many countries, that's yeah. difficult. Sure. So, um, all in all, there are advantages to having a contractor, mm. even if you don't control them as well. There are disadvantages yeah, as well, sure. but the technology facilitates it, makes it, it really it relatively straightforward. So, I think the technology has made it easier to piece out work in different ways. One development that I've also found fascinating um, is that the, the growth of uh, contingent work and uh, part-time work uh, and these less secure jobs has by no means been confined to the United States. No. And I've read, maybe only superficially, but I have read that in places like Britain and even Germany, 
which so many progressives, at least in this country, view as the model job market. They've done everything right. They have high-wage jobs. That there, in particular, um, German industry has begun relying very heavily on part-time work. And, and, and immigrants. Right, you right. Know. So right. There, there's a certain amount of truth to that. Mm -hmm. It's actually, I think, less so in Germany mm -hmm. and a bit more in England. Okay. Um, but I would also point to something interesting, which is not quite the gig economy. Mm -hmm. The Brits have been going through a lot of um, policy discussion and public anger about what they call zero hours contracts. Mm -hmm. These are actually standard American contracts okay. for many places like McDonald's. Mm. Um, th these are contracts where uh, a company hires you mm. and they say, all right, um, we, we'll pay you $12 an hour or $7 an hour, depending on uh, where they are. Mm. We're not going to guarantee you any number of hours. Wow. Mm. We will just sign you up and we'll tell you this week how mm. many hours you're going to work. That's basically putting right. all the risk of the work onto the worker with mm. no stability. Right. So workers find themselves committed to being at McDonald's, right. even if McDonald's has no hours for them. Right. And um, the Brits, are, are, I, I think, either have or are certainly considering legislation mm. to make this illegal, mm. because mm. it has tilted. It, it demonstrates that the balance of power has tilted massively to the company away from unskilled workers. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, you know, it is deeply unfair and it is mm -hmm. very difficult to manage your life. I mean, oh imagine gosh, having yeah. to deal with childcare, mm -hmm. right? right? If you don't know if you're going to be paid, right. you don't know when you're going to work, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost impossible. And you can't piece together a full-time job from multiple sources because no. they mm -hmm. all say you have to be on call. That's if you're right. not on call, That's they'll right. fire you. That's right. And so, uh, this could be an issue that eventually reaches America. It'll be mm. late because yeah. it's you know there are more, it, it's more in line with labor concerns sure. in Europe. Yeah. But um, but it's a sort of it's a characteristic of the gig economy that all of the uncertainty and risk is on the side of the worker. Well, sure, right. And I think that you know as people experience more and more of that, look. The gig economy has one great thing. Mm -hmm. You control your hours. Right. That's mm -hmm. a fantastic right. thing. I love it. I've worked in the gig economy. If there's myself, an abundance of hours. Yeah. So there are people, high paid people, for whom the gig economy is a wonderful fit. It's not so much for right. so many other people. They right. do it because they have to. Exactly. Is it possible to generalize, or, or, or is it useful to generalize about whether the new technologies are likelier to affect lower wage, low skill workers or higher wage, higher skill workers more? So, <laughs> so um, one, I, I could make three different arguments. Okay. I think the argument at the low end of the scale is that what people do is easy to automate. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there are machines now that are being built to flip burgers. They flip 2,000 burgers a day. No problem. They never get sick, right. they don't get injured, mm. they, don't, they don't fail to show up. Uh, so if you have something that's really simple to do, right. well, that's pretty easy to automate. Right. You go to the top end, to the doctor, mm. it's pretty hard to automate, but it's really worth it. Mm -hmm. right. What they charge is a <laughs> oh, lot. So it, if you can mm -hmm. figure out a way of automating a slice of a high-paid job, right. that's really worth yeah. doing.
So that's going to happen too. We've seen that with lawyers, for example. Look at, at the way that software has eliminated um, discovery as a, as a lucrative function for lawyers. So it software has started killing all the lawyers. Uh, it has, it, because, you know, like other service businesses, lawyers work with a kind of complex tripod of revenue streams and, um, you know, they, they have their own hours, then they bill out their associates at ridiculous right. wages. I mean, not wages, certainly not wages, but um, cost. Right. Well, if you take away one leg of the stool, it's pretty uncomfortable sitting on it. And we found that, you know, that aside from the top end of the legal profession, there's a lot of stress. One, one level down, there's a lot of stress. And it's partly because one big chunk of how they made money just got wiped out. So that's the top end. Well, then you've got the middle. But the, it's harder to say what's happening in the middle. There's a lot of management in there. We're, we're move, all one can do is look at the wage data and the, and the payroll data, and what you see is that the middle is hollowing out. Yes. Those jobs are, are really are, are gradually being eliminated. Mm. I have my own theory of how this relates to productivity, mm. um, uh, which we can... Please. Okay, well, sure. this, is, this, this is my Dilbert theory of productivity okay. gains. Okay. Um, so, to, just to back up for a second, um, Critics of my, you know, sort of uh, uh, automation and disruption hypothesis, right. just point to the to the productivity data, right. and they say, right. "Well, productivity is low. It can't be. Not much can be going on." Just to inject one one specific data point in here, because I've been taking a look lately at the new productivity numbers that the U.S. government has put out, and we see that, in particular, according to the broadest measure we have, the so-called multi-factor productivity, the the growth slowdown um, between the previous economic recovery during the so-called bubble decade, uh, during which it's clear th that the American economy was not nearly as healthy as it looked on the, the surface, the slowdown between that expansion and the productivity growth of the current expansion has been dramatic. You know, you raise a good point. Productivity appears to be down. And this is a problem for my argument because I'm arguing that we're about to be overwhelmed right. by the by productivity by, enhancing by, yeah, things. But yes. Well, there. I think it's good to think about the productivity paradox as having two sets of explanations. Mm. One set is mainstream economics, and this is where most economists come out. Um, sort of famously, Tyler Cowen and Robert Gordon have. Um, Argued that we are in a period of basically secular stagnation, right. that uh, that we the productivity is just down, and then the problem is to explain why mm -hmm. in this kind right. of apparently innovative period, yeah. eh, point backwards and say, well, electricity was much more important, mm -hmm. and the current current technology is just not that important, and mm -hmm. isn't having that, and uh, so that's one set of explanations. Mm -hmm. the, the the other set um, is really from what I call heretics. Mm -hmm. the, the productivity right. heretics who mm -hmm. say, well, actually, the, the data are increasingly bad. Right. And they're bad for a variety of reasons. Yeah. One can, uh, productivity data do a very poor job of dealing with new technologies. And to be fair, most economists, even those who, 
who, who, who are mainstream will agree argue, with that. Would agree that measuring productivity is, is one of the hardest things that they do and one of the areas in which they have the least confidence in their work. Well, I, if that was the case, mm -hmm. in reality, then maybe you can explain why they get hysterical because it's fallen from 2% to 1.8%. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, well, it's, it's, it, it, it's fallen by more recovery, than that. If yes. you look at it recovery to recovery, the growth rate has, has been cut in half. But this time is different. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> this maybe time is different. Right. So I believe we are seeing accelerating innovation, mm -hmm. which, uh, which productivity data is very poor at handling. Mm -hmm. They're good at handling shifts in the output of the same thing. Right. Okay. That's easy to measure. Mm -hmm. Hard right. to measure outputs of different things. Right. right. Um, they're very poor at measuring quality changes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have my cell phone to take pictures. My mm -hmm. pictures are better than the camera mm -hmm. I used to have, mm -hmm. uh, which I no longer carry. Right. GNP has gone down because the camera is no longer right. there, right. but my pictures are better and I can share them with anybody. Maybe which we, I need never... some, we need some more hurricanes to right. boost GNP for That's rebuilding. Right. Exactly. Right. Yes. Um, they're also very bad at measuring the informal economy, which mm. by definition is out of, uh, right. out of scope. Right. We can see the informal economy is growing. Mm -hmm. So some productivity is going there, but sure. it's not measured. Mm -hmm. right. And then I, I, there, are, there are a number of other features of this. Yeah. I, I personally like my own Dilbert explanation of yeah. this. Um, so if you're working in an office and you're a white collar worker, and gradually your productivity improves because mm. sof software gets better, processes get better. So what happens? Do you do more work? No. Right. Do you get fired? No. You spend more time watching Netflix and, and shopping and doing, doing Facebook and watching mm. porn and, mm. you know, in your office. And what's happening is mm. that the white collar workers are actually reappropriating the, <laughs> the productivity gains. Right, right, sure, they sure. take it. Right. The company doesn't get it. Right. It just happens. They just sit there, they do their work, it takes less and less time. And, the and then you have a, then you have a, a crash, right. like the Great Recession, right. bunch of people get fired, you reset back down to right. where you were, because now right. you, you may notice product, um, output doesn't fall. Right, right, so that right, implies sure. that there was a lot of hidden productivity somewhere right. that wasn't being fully accounted for. And it was being appropriated by the workers in the form of more leisure time, Exactly. At work. Exactly. Right. There's plenty of uh, you know, survey data to back this up. Sure, that is sure. what's happening. And if, if we read Dilbert every week, we see that that, that, right. that, that, that is the dominant feature of that company, right? <laughs> and it strikes a note, doesn't oh, it? Oh, it? absolutely it does. It does. So, it does. so you know, um, I, I put that as the Dilbert theory of productivity. Oh. But, but um, anyway, yeah. so my, my sort of general point is I, I think that productivity is actually growing much faster than we okay. think it is okay. and can measure. Right. Now, let's uh, try to link the advent of these new technologies to another big policy debate that we're having in this country and also Europe, and that's over immigration. Yeah. If we are on the cusp of an age when technology will become a significant net job destroyer, do we want to maintain the same kinds of quantitative immigration policies that we have, essentially letting in about a million workers legally each year, some through family unification, some through an explicit search for, for job skills. Um, 
do those two uh, do those two strategies mix very well? It would seem to me there uh, there are some important contradictions there. I think there are contradictions. I mean, it's interesting as a sort of student of the labor movement. It's fascinating mm -hmm. to see where the labor movement has gone on Yike. this. The, la the labor movement used to be vigorously anti-immigrant sure, sure. because they wanted to defend existing jobs and existing right. workers. Right. And we've now shifted so that the, I, I think there is a contradiction that the Democratic Party is now pretty strongly pro-immigrant and not just pretty strongly pro-immigrant for immigrants who are here, mm -hmm. which I personally would support. I know that we might have some differences about that. Sure. Um, uh, but it's hard. That I, I think many Democrats are, are pretty careful not to think too hard about where to draw the line. Right. Um, looking at what I've found, I think it's clear that there are certain jobs where mm -hmm. immigration really does affect the labor market. Mm -hmm. uh, and the two that I would point out are at diametrically opposed ends of the labor spectrum. Mm -hmm. One is computer programmers, mm -hmm. where I think Microsoft and uh, the other high-tech companies um, basically have ruthlessly exploited the H-1B visa mm -hmm. uh, program in order to keep wages down. And once again, just for those who are not familiar with it, it's a special visa program that lets in a certain number of workers who ostensibly have got extraordinary skills that, yeah. or extraordinarily specialized skills that are, that are urgently needed by specific employers. Yes. And, you know, we... <laughs> I, when I talk to my um, my pro innovation friends, mm -hmm. and and I am pro innovation, uh, mm -hmm. but they they say, well, you know, you just need to teach people to code, and they'll right. they'll, well, the wages of of coders have not changed, right. Right. and they haven't mm -hmm. changed in part because mm -hmm. the supply is sure. affected by H one B. So at the other end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. right. among cashiers, mm -hmm. that um, cashiers work in a labor market where um, the impact of Hispanic immigrants has been significant. Mm. Hispanic cashier, the share of cashiers who are Hispanic is up from 10% to 25%. Mm. Uh, they've all, the, the, the traditional cashier population has also suffered, incidentally, right. by an influx of men. Mm. Used to be a very, very female po um, uh, uh, job, and now, as men have been pushed out of better jobs in manufacturing, mm -hmm. right. they are now becoming cashiers. And the result is real wages have been falling. What a surprise. Uh, what a surprise. Mm -hmm. um, apparently not falling fast enough because uh, we're looking at automating them out of a job anyway. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but, but so I do mm -hmm. take your point that, and I guess what I would say is, the way to think about mm -hmm. immigration is if there are true labor shortages, mm -hmm. well, as a short-term policy, sure. might, one might very mm -hmm. well want to allow immigration. Mm -hmm. One might want to allow refugees for other reasons. Mm -hmm. We might yeah. want sure. to deal with families differently. Mm -hmm. um, but just from a labor market perspective, one has to be realistic that adding labor to a, to a market means that mm. there's more supply and hence that right. you tend to get lower wages. Right. And I don't think that's a positive thing for, for the labor market generally. Let, we can come back to that later. Let's get a little futuristic here, okay? Okay. Um, one of the main worries that, that I keep reading about 
Uh, hopefully my, my reading is, is representative of mm -hmm. the general public discussion, um, is that um, these new technologies have such extraordinary potential to replace labor that in, in the foreseeable future, and of course people disagree about how quickly this will come, in the foreseeable future we're going to be living in a society where there's just not a lot of work to be done, generally speaking. Right. And, even highly, and even folks who are highly qualified for the current job market are simply not going to be able to find work. And uh, spinning this forward uh, perhaps a little bit further, um, there seems to be a, a lot of anxiety about the possibility of a future where many of us are not going to be able to define ourselves by our jobs because there just won't be enough work to go around. So this is an important, really deep, deep point. Uh, one, one would have to say that if that was the case, mm -hmm. it would not be because we as a society have become less wealthy. Mm. On the contrary, it would be because we've become more wealthy as more productive technologies have replaced humans, right? Right. So, one, so, so you have to differentiate between what I would call the material characteristics of a job and the um, personal or satisfying right. characteristics right. of a job. The, the material side we will eventually have to deal with. Mm -hmm. I mean, one can see futures ranging from sort of terrible dystopias where packs of semi-feral people are roaming the earth right. in between gated communities of rich people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that's a horrifying vision. Go to South Florida. You, you have to remember that if we have all this replacement of labor, we're going to end up with a bigger pie. We must do. We'll be a, more, we'll we'll be be a much wealthier society. We'll be a wealthier society. We may end up uh, with uh, you know, packs of feral humans <laughs> scrabbling around outside the gated communities of uh, possibly South Florida. But possibly today. Uh, yes, possibly today. Um, but the, so we have to solve a redistribution problem right. uh, on the material side. And there are experiments out there uh, in uh, um, basic income. Right. And, and there are others in terms of guaranteed work, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, one, one of the interesting things that, about how this works together, if you have a guaranteed income, right. you don't need to pay people a minimum wage. Sure. They have a minimum, you know, yes. I have lots of things on my house that I would like to pay somebody a dollar an hour to do, yeah, right. which they yeah. might enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. They might, I mean, they're parts so that they might not. But, so, um, if you don't have a minimum wage, you, ca you have a more flexible set of jobs. Right. There's more that you can imagine sure. people doing. And, uh, so on the material side, it's partly just we have to have a political circumstance that allows us to fix it. Right. And it's going to be difficult. Sure. And the transition is it's going to be especially difficult. Mm -hmm. What do you do when some people are working full time and other people have a guaranteed income? Right. That is going to be tricky. That's a formula for some real social and political division. Yes. Yes, it is. But let's turn to the non-material right. side. I agree with you. People get a sense of self-worth. In fact, one could argue that the story of capitalism is about how more and more of their self-worth is bound up in right. their job. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you go and see, and, and it's true perhaps, especially in America, I think mm -hmm. here you would go to a party and you'd ask somebody what they what do, 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 
And other places you might ask, where are you from? What, you know, what soccer team do you support? I How mean, about a, that great concert last week? Exactly. Yeah, right. So, so we, we've really sort of, you know, internalized mm -hmm. that very deeply. And if people, if you take that away from people, one can see that it would be challenging. But there are models. We, we have a big retired community. Mm -hmm. And most of those retired people, A, enjoy retirement, and mm -hmm. B, um, do a lot. They sure. travel, they work in the community, they yeah. see their kids. Right. You know, there's a, lo there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of learning going on, oh, yeah. uh, long, uh, uh, lifelong learning and education. Mm -hmm. So, and, and one could imagine um, opportunities for more connected communities. Uh, yeah. If you had more time and, right. and uh, you know, I think we're going to have to figure out how to take care of old people. This is becoming more important as I get older. Um, so, so uh, there's plenty of opportunities for things to do. Right. I think the question is, will people be motivated without a, without a job? Right. The evidence is fairly good that, sure. yeah, I think they will be. So I'm, I'm less concerned about that. Yeah. I think we'll find, we will find a way. And actually what we'll find is many, many different ways. It'll be interesting to see if enough people are motivated to spend their time usefully and constructively so that uh, you have a, a continuing and ongoing improvement of the level of civilization as well, opposed to a world full of slackers who are playing video games and not much else. Well, this is the, you know, this is the classic uh, division between conservatives and sure, liberals, exactly, isn't it? Right, so, right, right, right. You know, we'll, liberals are optimists we'll and conservatives are pessimists, we'll and we'll see how it turns we'll out. Yeah. out. Now, um, clearly, as, as we've been indicating throughout the discussion, this, um, um, however slowly or quickly or, or yeah. completely or partly one, one sees uh, these new technologies spreading, infecting the workforce. Clearly, there's a series of policy challenges that will be facing governments. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, um, before we start to deal with how the United States government has been handling mm. this or not handling this, are there other countries um, whose governments you feel are at this point doing an especially good job or an especially poor job? So I'd like to point to Germany okay. for, for two reasons, because I think two of the things that they do uh, will matter to us. Mm. The first is the notion of a works council mm. um, and of a supervisory board for large companies that includes stakeholders, not just shareholders. Right, right. I, I think this is something we have to move towards. I meaning think workers. Meaning workers, organized, right, yes, right, line workers. Right, right. And but also the local state. Mm, Often right, the local right, state has right. a significant uh, sure. uh, uh, stake in, the, in, in, in company governance. Right. We have allowed ourselves to be um, swept away by, by the notion that the only thing a company is for is to take care of its shareholders. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and its top executives who intervene <laughs> to ensure that their pockets are well lined. Mm -hmm. um, this, you know, this just seems to be nonsense to me. I mean, it, to the extent that we allow corporations to incorporate in our country mm. and, and work in our communities, we need to impose um, responsibilities. 
Well, certainly the expected spin-offs that uh, conservatives, in particular free market folks, uh, typically promise uh, will result spontaneously from the shareholder capitalism model, more job-creating investment, more efficient use of resources, yeah. a more productive economy, kind of haven't been happening. Well, they may be Enough. happening, but not necessarily here. That's true too, exactly. <laughs> and, not necessarily, right. mm -hmm. and not necessarily in the communities where they are now. Right. We've had, yes, it's true that there's been a, 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 lot, a, a lot of investment in the US. It's been uh, driving a huge shift of production from the north to the south, right. where mm -hmm. conditions are easier for companies, mm -hmm. wages are lower, re regulation is less. Lighter, right? we, we are sort of using the the, the states to fuel a, a race to the bottom. Absolutely. Um, but they move abroad too. Yes, they do. So my, I guess my view is that we should be encouraging policies that treat companies as American right. to the extent that they are American, right. which is that they have jobs here and wages here and right. payroll here. That's it. And certainly you do benefit greatly from incorporating here, from doing business sure. here. And uh, it would seem that uh, at least some form of uh, pay-go yes. would be highly justified. Yes. So that's one. And the other thing that the Germans do, perhaps better than anybody else, is their apprenticeship system. Okay. So we have, a, we have a population that even today, coming into the workforce now, only a third of our kids have a, have a BA a college oh, degree, right. a bachelor's degree, one-third. One-third have no more than high school. Right. This is the knowledge economy. Right. We, mm -hmm. we have big problems here. Sure. We need to be able to figure out ways to incorporate the non-college educated mm -hmm. people into our economy right. in much more efficient ways. Sure. And I think the apprenticeship program mm -hmm. is one. I, also, I, I was also very disappointed with uh, Ob the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. I felt that their steps to support community colleges yeah. were timid and mm -hmm. insufficient. Right. They need to be driving this. That's where the value is. It's not, you know, yes, we need our, our great universities and our colleges. Yes, I'm not yeah. saying take it away from them. But we need to be investing in the two-thirds of the population right. who are not going right. to college. Right. Right. And, and that's what the Germans do. Exactly. Now, let's turn to the United States. You, you mm. just expressed a disappointment in the previous president. The yeah. current president uh, hasn't been in office that long. Right. So maybe not, uh, not yet appropriate to draw any solid conclusions. But, but here we have um, a federal system where the states are supposed to be laboratories of democracy, yeah. where you have yeah. had some continuity. Are there any states or, or your regions that you can point to uh, as, as having forward-looking strategies here? Um, I, I certainly yeah. hope so. Yeah, no, I can. Um, yeah. I would say that um, some of the Rust Belt states have really worked hard. Yeah. Uh, I think Ohio has, with, with, has made really substantial investments in right. trying to rebuild its economy. Yeah. If you look at places like Pittsburgh, yeah. Sure. Uh, where a, a Rust Belt city has reinvest, re reinvented itself sure. as a university and medical complex. Right. Right. Uh, that, that's pretty impressive. But even in places like Akron, you know, yeah. the University of Akron oh, sure. has... Very entrepreneurial. Very yeah. entrepreneurial, very yeah. active. Right. So it's possible to... Look, 
it's hard to grow innovative companies. Right. It's just hard. Right. You need a complete ecosystem right. to help it happen on a consistent basis and make, right. it, make, it, make it grow. Um, but um, so I would say that, and I would say um, that the states that have invested the most in education have probably done best. Okay. You know, that, mm -hmm. that so far that's what's panned out right. best. What, one national trend that uh, seems to be pretty deeply rooted and that seems, to, uh, that seems destined to continue has been um, labor market mismatches. And you see it, um, in part anyway, in the monthly government data on job openings, yeah. where even in sectors like manufacturing, where there's supposed to be no long-term future in you know, gainful employment, whatever, right. you <laughs> see hundreds of thousands of, of, of yeah. jobs that the, now, uh, this is a situation reported by the, the manufacturers yeah, yeah. themselves, but let's assume that they're being honest, right. and they do so. need 300,000 workers each yes. month that they claim they can't find. So there's two things, um, two, two points I'd make about that. One is that it used to be that manufacturing uh, companies train their own workers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when Henry Ford started his production line, there was nobody who knew how to do no one, to, to work in a production line. Because they didn't exist before. Right? When I was visiting Ohio, I spoke to somebody at Honda, mm -hmm. and he was looking for people who could um, operated a computer-driven cutting tool. Mm -hmm. And I, so I talked to him, I said, okay, well, how many people do you want? And he said, oh, about 12. I'm looking hard, I can't find them. Right. And I said, well, why don't right. you just train them? Right. And he said, oh, we don't do that. Right. right. You know, right. They, yeah. so there, this is part of that sort of shift to shareholder value, right? Yeah. It's right. part right. of not seeing that you have a long-term stake in, right. in what right. you're doing. So, so I guess that's one point. The other point I would make, um, is that we're seeing the negative consequences of online recruitment. Mm. So if you want a job now, really, you have right. to apply online. It's almost impossible to find That's a job right. that you can apply for in person. You Pounding have to have, the pavement is... It, is yeah, gone. right, so you pound the computer instead. Right. <laughs> so, so what's happened? People post a job, mm. they used to get the 10 people who were prepared to walk in and fill in an application. Right. Right. You know, I get 5,000 applications. Mm. If you've ever seen uh, a, a job call for a fast food restaurant, it's mm. absolutely astounding. It is. It is. I, I passed one uh, a week or so ago up in, in Wheaton in, in my area. Mm. Lines around the block to oh. sign up for a new Roy Rogers. Mm. Uh, absolutely astounding. Mm. So, so you get, so you're, you're manufacturing, you get 5,000 people, right? right? So how do you sort them? Do you look at the qualifications of each one? This is impossible. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. have the time. Right. So what do you do? You say, well, let's start with all the ones who have a BA. Mm -hmm. right. right? So jobs which, which don't require a BA and where the people who working the job don't have a BA, right. Right. nonetheless right. require that the right. next applicant have one. Mm -hmm. So we right. have this credential creep. Sure. Right. And it's substantial. And it makes it, so what right. we're doing is bifurcating the labor market as a re direct result of this technology. Yeah. And I don't point. really blame the manufacturer because they're kind of stuck. They're swamped. It's, they're swamped. Right. Right. So what do you do? How, how do you do this? How do you filter people? Yeah. It's very difficult. There also seems to be an emerging 
uh, and perhaps for quite a while, geographic mismatch. Yes. Uh, it seems that yeah. many of the jobs that are available for so-called mid-skill people are increasingly not in areas where right. a lot of the mid-skill people live. Right. And moving is hard because of housing prices. And well, not just housing. I think it's interesting that the, the rate of movement yeah. used to be that about 20% of Americans moved every year. Right. That was in right. the early 80s, not right. so long ago. Right. Yeah. Now it's 11%. That's a big drop. It's a huge drop and it's partly housing because right. the jobs are in places where the housing is expensive. Yeah, sure. But I think, you know, the right wing would say, well, it's all these social services and benefits so that you know, people are tied to their location, they don't want to lose their benefits, and they can afford to not work. So there's some, probably some truth to that. Um, but one can also think of it more positively. People live, people are not just economic actors. They live embedded in a community, and it's a community of support. This is where their family is. They know, I mean, the definition of a family is wh where they have to take you in. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So this is a place where you're safe in a certain sense in a very difficult, uncertain world. Right. Moving to New York or to, to San Francisco right. is a huge gamble. It's a daunting you, proposition. Really yes, is. and yeah. given that um, according to the feds, more than 50% of Americans would find it impossible to pay a sudden bill of $400, oh, right, right. where are they going to get the money to sure, move? Sure, how does that happen? How, how does that happen? It's not it like the Jodes where you pack up your, right, your truck right. and everything. And Which you, was a pretty daunting venture itself. It was but, indeed, uh, but it, and it was driven by absolute desperation. Absolutely. Right. Um, but, but, you know, one can imagine kind of doing that in those days. It was still go west, young man, right? right exactly. Sure, well, sure. not not sure. now. Sure. You go west and you have to sleep on the streets. Yeah. Um, and so Robin, finally, let's uh, bring this conversation to a close by asking you, generally speaking, realizing that we all uh, have uh, fairly cloudy crystal balls, are you relatively optimistic about American society's ability to handle this transition uh, in a reasonably smooth way or are you uh, not so optimistic? Wow. So I, I have to say that I am an immense technological optimist. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear that we're all going to run out of water in 2050 <laughs> and we're going to run out of energy and we're going to run out of this and run out of that. I, I, I don't believe that. I believe that we will solve our climate issues. I believe we will solve our water and our pesticide issues mm -hmm. and others. Uh, I know that there are reasons to believe that it's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. but. I, I really believe that we are on the cusp of a period of incredible bounty in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a technological mm -hmm. sense. I am fairly pessimistic about how well we will handle that uh, because the evidence from the last 30 years is not so good. Right. You know, what, what we've seen, and, and even in the last year, so in the last 30 years, mm -hmm. we've seen an incredible growth in the wealth of the top 10%. Mm -hmm. Absolutely staggering. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't enough, right? right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't enough to be incredibly rich. One had to become yet richer by right. imposing a massive tax on our grandchildren. Mm -hmm. right. And I, you know, that doesn't fill me with optimism no. that we, well, we, have a, we have a dominant elite that, that sees only its own in short term interests and benefits. Yeah. 
and that's never a formula for social or national success, at least not over any significant well, stretch and, of time. Well, and one could argue that all of these, you know, elites have never been especially good right. at seeing beyond the end of their nose. Or sharing. Or sharing. Not at the sharing. Sharing and, and vision are not their characteristics, mm -hmm. strongest characteristics. So if you look back through social history, you find that periods of very strong populist and uh, labor organization and ferment have led to major improvements sure. and new social contracts. Right. Uh, we had one after the war, we mm -hmm. had one in Britain in the right. 1850s, mm -hmm. another one in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So these periods of crisis and conflict in the end have worked out well for the elites, though they didn't think so at right. the time. Right. Uh, and maybe we, I, I think it's almost certain that we will need another one, mm. bec but, but it's going to be harder because technology and globalization have tilted the playing field so that the power of the elites to protect themselves right. is much stronger than it, sure. uh, than it ever was. Sure. They don't care, they don't have to care what happens here. Exactly, exactly. They may, mm -hmm. but they don't have to. Right. Well, it's not my natural inclination to end discussions like this on a relatively somber note, no. but, <laughs> but perhaps, perhaps realism is the first step toward, uh, uh, toward, toward finding new solutions That's that right. actually will be constructed. If you don't think it's a problem, you're not going to solve it. Exactly. If it ain't broke, you're not going to want to fix That's it. That's right. So, Robert, again, thank you so much for That's your time. Great. We really appreciate your insights. And uh, we will, oh, first of all, how can people find you online? Uh, they can find my uh, company at incumetrics.com, mm -hmm. and they can find my work in this area right. at greatdisruption2018.com. How aptly named. Yes. And again, thank you so much. We will look forward to Thanks. following your work. And, uh, th and uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to this month's Smart Talk. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.